Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. All right, Crosspoint. So this morning, it is my pleasure to introduce to you our guest speaker for today, uh, he is a youth pastor at a fellow Alliance church, uh, Sherwood Park Alliance, and uh, I was just, yeah, I just want to ask you to, intru- uh, to join me in giving a warm cross-point welcome to Brody Jesperson. Okay, so I can sit down now. I think that was about the time I was given to speak this morning. Uh, Hey, it's super great to be with you guys. Um, I, uh, as was mentioned, I've been a youth pastor for 15 years, uh, so that part wasn't mentioned. I've given my heart to this for a long time. Uh, I'm brand new to the Alliance. I've been involved in the Alliance uh, church world for only two years, so this summer is is year number two over at Sherwood Park Alliance. I'm loving the family. Uh, I've heard lots of good things about your congregation. One of my staff members, my senior high pastor, actually uh, interned with you uh, at Cross Point several years ago, um, and she has nothing but good things to say. Uh, We've been connected as a church as well uh, to the community over at Beverly and so just love what God is doing and so pumped for this next season and chapter of ministry for you guys. Uh, I'm I'm privileged to be here. Rob reached out to us uh, knowing that that the load was going to be different over this next month as you guys are transitioning Uh, and and I raised my hand right away to to our pastor Greg over there when the ask was given out uh, who wants to go and and help out this congregation. So uh, this is a privilege and a blessing to get to be here and to do this uh, with you guys as well. I uh, just want to, some crowd participation, seems like you guys are used to that or somehow coached in what you're supposed to do when somebody comes and visits, so this will be great. Uh, just by show of hands, uh, how many of you have ever gone to Starbucks or Tim Hortons and you, you place your order, a coffee, a bagel, whatever the case might be, some of those new fancy French word for eggs, uh, and you drive up to the window and you go to hand them the card and they say, oh, oh, no worries, the person in front of you has paid for you. How many has that happened to you before? Yeah, lots, right? Like, look around the room. Some of you are like, aww, <laughs> this has never happened to me. But for lots of us, we're like, yeah, yeah, we've been there before. Uh, and, and it feels good when that happens, right? If you've ever had that happen to you, you kind of immediately have this sense of like, everything's right in the world, right? Like, there's goodness in the world. There's good people out there that just want to pay for my drinks. Now, for me, I, I've had this happen several times. Uh, And I have that same emotion that kind of comes over me, this overwhelming sense of, you know, people are good, everything's good, let's love one another. And then immediately after I have that emotion wash over me, the unsanctified part of me, which is actually a really big part of me, uh, immediately starts to, to say something like this. Does this mean I have to pay for the person behind me? Right? Like, it's like, ah. I guess that's what I'm supposed to, I was going to pay anyway, so I might as well pay, right? And so then I'm like, okay, okay, well, I'd like to pay for the person behind me, I guess. Uh, and they're like, oh, okay, then you pay them, and then you drive away, and you look in your rearview mirror, and you're just wondering, like, oh, are they going to pay for the person behind them too? Like, how long is this, gener- or this uh, generosity train going to keep going, right? Because I don't know for a fact that the person in front of me paid for me because they looked in their rearview mirror and thought, I 
to pay for this guy. Or if they're paying for me because the person in front of them paid for them and now they feel like they need to pay for me, right? And did the person in front of them pay for them because they wanted to pay for them? Or did they pay for them because the person in front of them paid for them? And now they feel like they need to pay for them. Like how long does this go? How deep does, at what point did somebody just genuinely say, I want to be generous, right? But we all know when it ends, right? We all know when that generosity train comes to an abrupt halt. I had this happen where where I went to hand them the card and I was like, well, I guess I should pay for the person behind me. And they're like, are you sure? I'm like, well, of course I'm sure. Like the person in front of me bought my coffee. I might as well pay for what they're going to buy. They're like, well, just so you know, sir, their bill is $27. Like, oh, no, not going to happen today. (laughs) Thank you. God bless you. Have a great day, right? Like, what do you buy at Tim Hortons for $27? right? Immediately that train is over. It's done. See, it's easy for me to want to pay back generosity when generosity is given to me, so long as as I'm paying back an equal amount of generosity in return, right? Like that sort of of generosity is, is really, really easy to do. I love this type of kindness. When someone pays us a compliment, it's it's really natural and quick for us to want to pay and return a compliment in return. But what happens when things are flipped? What happens when it's, when it's the other way around? What happens when someone, rather than reaching towards you with, with kindness or goodness, reaches out towards you with evil or, or even ill will? How do we respond in those sort of moments? Or the bigger question maybe is how are we supposed to respond in those sort of, sort of moments? And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to jump to a text that's, that's from the story of David. And my hope is that that as we kind of walk through this chapter in 1 Samuel, uh, that we'll discover a call and an invitation towards what it looks like for us to respond the way that God would actually hope for us to respond. You see, David throughout the scriptures was described as being a man uh, who is after God's own heart. This was a man who, this was the man that God saw David to be, a man who was intimately pursuing himself. And the reality is, God didn't describe David as this because David lived a perfect life. If you know David's story, you know that it's far from that. He was a a mess at many moments in his life. But the thing that seemed to set David apart from the rest was the fact that he actually never tries to take God's place for himself. And David strives in all ways and situations to see and to seek and do the will of God and make much of God rather than seeking his own will and making much of himself. The guy was painfully human, though. (laughs) I mean, you can't look at the story of David and ever think, this guy's unrelatable. I can't relate to this person, David. At least I know for myself, when I look at the story of David, I really easily enter into the story knowing that I myself would have done many of the same things that David himself did. And and that's kind of the point of most narratives in Scripture. See, David's story intersects with our story because for many of us, his story is our story. And so this morning, we're going to jump into a really, really vivid narrative. And it might be one that that you're not familiar with, uh, but hopefully it's going to reveal for us the character of David for sure, uh, but more so the work and power of God who was leading and faithfully directing David each and every step of the way. So if you have a, a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open it up, have it on your lap in front of you. If you have a device that has the scriptures on it, same thing, I would encourage you go there. It'll be on the screens as well, but it's going to be better if you're holding it yourself. And I'd invite you to go to 1 Samuel chapter 25. We're going to work through that that whole chapter. 
And so follow along if you, if you would. Starting at verse 1. It says, Now Samuel died, and all of Israel gathered for his funeral. They buried him at his house in Ramah. Now, pause there, just really quick. This is kind of an abrupt start uh, to a chapter. Uh, and this is a bizarre footnote. See, Samuel was a prophet to the people of Israel, and he was actually a personal friend to David. Samuel was used by God early in David's story to anoint David as the future king of Israel. But if you know their story, you know that this was all done while there was a current king, Saul, who was still active and on the throne. And so we have part of one verse right here added in to tell us that this guy Samuel died, that they gave him a funeral, and that they buried him at his house. Why? If you go one chapter before, it's not like it gives us any more context. It's just kind of thrown in here as a bit of a footnote. Why? Now, I'm going to ask you just to kind of keep that little footnote in the back of your mind. So we're going to come back to it and its importance in just a few moments. But let's keep moving through the story. It says, Then David moved down to the wilderness of Maon. There was a wealthy man from Maon who owned property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep shearing time. The man's name was Nabal, and his wife, Abigail, was a sensible and beautiful woman. But Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, was crude and mean in all of his dealings. Now, again, a couple quick notes to give us some context. Nabal is told to be a descendant of Caleb. So in effect, what we're doing is we're making an assumption that he belongs on, on the margins of Israel. See, Caleb, like Rahab, came to trust Yahweh personally, and, and we're not Israelites or God's chosen people by birth. So this was a guy who, who still should have been familiar with the teachings of God and his people, but who is described as being crude, which we're going to see very, very close. And his wife, who is being described to us as, as sensible, also to come. Verse 4 says, When David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent ten of his young men to Carmel with this message for Nabal. Peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything you own. I'm told that it's sheep shearing time. While your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, we never harmed them, and nothing was ever stolen from them. Ask your men, and they'll tell you this is true. So would you be kind to us? Since we've come at a time of celebration, please share any provisions you might have on hand with us, your friend David. And David's young men gave this message to Nabal in David's name, and they waited for a reply. Now, in case you missed it, here's, here's kind of what's going on. David catches wind that it's payday. It's sheep shearing time for this wealthy man. And David, in some ways, is, is actually looking to cash in. Uh, this has tinges of what you'd see in, in like an old mobster movie, right? Where, where the, the mobsters, kind of tough guys, come into the convenience store and demand from the clerk their, their payout for their so-called protection of living in their land. You see, David is on the run right now. He's in between his being anointed as king and his ascension to the throne. And the current king, Saul, has a bounty out for David's head. He wants David dead so that he doesn't lose his throne. And so David is out there with this ragtag army and they're hiding, waiting for God to place David on the throne and make them, him, their king. In fact, this story that, that we're looking at this morning is sandwiched between two of these moments that were recorded where David actually has the opportunity to kill King Saul. 
The first in chapter 24 is when David and his men are hiding. They're backed up into a cave. And Saul actually comes into the cave and is, is actually in a, in, a, in a pretty revealing state as he's revealing himself or relieving himself. And David has this opportunity where, where the guys are pushing him, telling him, go, go, this is your chance. God has delivered him to us. Go and kill him. And David moves close enough and actually takes a swipe at him and ends up with a piece of his, of his cloak. And that's all that happens. The second in, in chapter 26 is when David and his men uh, actually sneak into Saul's camp in the middle of the night. And David has this moment where he's standing over top of Saul. And the story describes for us that that there's a spear right next to Saul's head. Again, David has this this opportunity before him to put an end to Saul's life and subsequently his having to run from Saul for his life. And in both of these instances, we see David acting with this supernatural sense of self-control. In the cave, like I said, he went as far as to cut a piece of Saul's robe, but then he restrains himself. And in both of these cases, David acknowledges his need to submit to the one who the Lord has anointed. You see, David knew that even though Saul wanted him dead, that Saul was in power because the Lord had put him there. And the only way that that would change would be by God's hand and not David's hand. And so he relents. But we're going to see that that sandwiched between both of those stories we have David seem to respond differently to these current situations. So David sends this request to Nabal asking for these provisions. And here is Nabal's response, verse 10. Who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to the young men. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? There's lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? Now, let me give you the Brody translation. <laughs> Essentially, Nabal says, David who? His, his comments are riddled with insult at David's father, Jesse, at David's position as servant of Saul, at even where he's come from, he effectively says, David is a nobody who came from nowhere and is currently nothing but a runaway outlaw. Why should I share anything with someone so pathetic? And we're going to see that, that David actually doesn't appreciate this so much. Verse 12, so David's young men returned and told him what Nabal had said. Get your swords, was David's reply as he strapped on his own. And the 400 men started off with David and 200 remained behind to guard their equipment. Now he's mad. Like really mad. Like not I'm just coming over there to spank you mad, but while I'm coming, I'm removing my belt on the way towards you to get ready for this kind of mad. David gears up. He jumps from zero to 100 instantly. And the plan that he has is to lead 400 armed men to Nabal's household to obliterate everyone. See, for David, knowing what he did for Nabal, leaving them alone, providing a sense of of protection for them was something that should have been paid back. This wasn't done for free. It was time for them to, to pay up. And it wasn't just the fact that, that Nabal said no, it was how Nabal said no. And so enraged, they moved towards the homestead. The story goes on, verse 14. Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail and told her, 
David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed insults at them. These men have been very good to us, and we never suffered any harm from them. Nothing was stolen from us the whole time they were with us. In fact, day and night, they were like a wall of protection to us and the sheep. You need to know this and figure out what to do, for there's going to be trouble for our master and his whole family. He's so ill-tempered that no one can even talk to him. Now, ironically, Nabal's name uh, means fool. It can be translated fool. However, it's doubtful that this was the meaning his parents were going for when they named him, uh, as his name can also mean guitar. So chances are his father was a guitar player, and he was named Nabal in order to honor him. But right now, he's living into his alternate meaning of his name, right? He's messing with the wrong people. He's fighting the wrong battles. And the plead from the servant was, we need to do something about it now. And it's Nabal's wife, Abigail, whom we'll see, steps up into the story. She knows what needs to be done. And we're going to see that, that rather than go and tell someone what's going on, she just does what needs to be done all on her own. Now, I, I don't know your context, so sorry, Rob, if this is going to push in a way that I shouldn't be pushing. But this is just a little bit of a freebie, okay? <laughs> this is one of those stories in the Bible that pushes on those of you who might have a problem with women in leadership because you feel like God hasn't really worked through women and, and used them as leaders through Scripture. This is one of those stories that, that you're just going to have to probably wrestle with a little bit and, and be pushed on and stretched on a little bit uh, because we, we're going to see powerfully God do something in Abigail that's, that's actually profound. And that's all I'm going to say about that, okay? Verse 18, Abigail wasted no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins full of wine, five sheep that had been slaughtered, nearly a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 fig cakes. She packed them onto donkeys and said to her servants, go on ahead, I will follow you shortly. But she didn't tell her husband, Nabal, what she was doing. She's just going to get her done, right? Blood is about to be shed. And she does what needs to be done. And we're going to see in just a few moments that it, that it might not have been only her orchestrating all of this. Verse 20, as she was riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, she saw David and his men coming towards her. And David had just been saying, a lot of good it did to help this fellow. We protected his flocks in the wilderness and nothing he owned was ever lost or stolen. But he's repaid me evil for good. May God strike me and kill me if even one man of his household is still alive tomorrow morning. David is seething. So much so that, that the impression we get is he's just walking saying that over and over and over again. Just ranting it out loud. And maybe he's doing that because he wants to motivate the, the 400 men that are with them because they might be kind of questioning and wondering, like, really, we're going to do this, David, over this? Okay, okay. And so he's just shouting out, what, what, a, what an idiot. Can you believe this? Let's go. Maybe he's trying to convince himself a little bit. There's a sense of like, am I doing the right thing? And so he's just telling himself this narrative over and over and over. Regardless of the fact, Abigail sees him, hears this, and then moves in towards David. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Man, please don't pay any attention to him. He's a fool, just as his name suggests. But I never even saw the young men that you sent. Essentially, Abigail says, I'm sorry, you really should have come to me. 
Nabal's an idiot. <laughs> but now what we're about to see is, is there's going to be a shift that starts to take place in the story. And in specific, what, what it is that Abigail is speaking to David as it starts to become pointed. And it's clear that something more is at work behind the scenes and what she's going to speak over him. Verse 26. She says, now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands. Did you catch that? Did you see what she's doing there? She's good, right? Like she's, she, this is like a Jedi mind trick that she's playing on David right now, right? She waves her hand in front of David and she says, you will not kill Nabal and his family today, right? You want to go home and rethink your life, right? You don't need to see their identification. These are not the droids you're looking at. Catching what I'm doing here a little bit? Some of you? Okay, awesome. Shockingly, though, we're going to see that it works. And not because of some secret power of the force, but there's something else that's going on here. In any case, she goes on. She says, let all of your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. And here's a present that I, your servant, have brought to you and your young men. Please forgive me if I've offended you in any way. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty. For you are fighting the Lord's battles. And you've not done any wrong throughout your entire life. Now, in some ways, she, she goes to try and puff him up. Which can be a helpful tool in diffusing an angry vengeance seeker. But then she turns and makes things very personal. Verse 29. She says, even when you're chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of your Lord, of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. Then she says, but the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. And when the Lord has done all he promised and has made you leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. And when the Lord has done these great things for you, please remember me, your servant. Now, she's speaking of two pretty significant David experiences here. And I don't know if you caught that. But the one who she says is, is chasing and seeking David, whom God has protected David from, is Saul. What she's doing is she's reaching back and pointing forward to is, is this pursuit of Saul after the life of David and God's provision for David all along the way. Somehow she has this knowledge and she's reminding David that his self-control and patience in this situation will be rewarded much like it will be with Saul. And notice as well at what she points at when she refers to David's enemies. Did you catch that? How will they disappear? She says, like, stones shot from a sling. Hmm. Where do you think she got that from? You know, right? You, you know? the Right? David, Goliath, right? We know, okay? Okay, I'm just making sure you're with me. Okay, regardless. What it is that she says to him has direct influence on David. Verse 32, David replied to Abigail, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and carrying out vengeance with my own hands. 
For I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, who has kept me from hurting you, that if you had not hurried out here to meet me, not one of Nabal's men would still be alive tomorrow morning. And then David accepted her present and told her, return home in peace. I've heard what you said, and we will not kill your husband. Abigail saves the day for her family, for her people, but also, as we're going to see in a moment, for David and his lineage. The story wraps up, verse 39. When Abigail arrived home, she found that Nabal was throwing a big party and celebrating like a king. He was very drunk, so she didn't tell him anything about her meeting with David until dawn the next day. And in the morning, when Nabal was sober, sober, his wife told him what had happened. And as a result, he had a stroke, and he lay paralyzed on his bed like a stone, and about ten days later, the Lord struck him and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received from Nabal and kept me from doing it myself. Nabal has received the punishment for his sin. Then David sent messengers to Abigail to ask her to become his wife. And when the messengers arrived at Carmel, they told Abigail, David has sent us to take you back to marry him. And she bowed low to the ground and responded, I, your servant, would be happy to marry David. I would even be willing to become a slave washing the feet of his servants. And quickly getting ready, she took five of her servant girls as attendants, mounted her donkey, and went with David's messengers. And so she became his wife. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> it's a powerful and vivid story, right? And there's so much that's in here. And so with what little time I have left, I want to answer just two simple questions, okay? Why is this story in here? And what on earth are we supposed to do with it today, okay? So the first, why is this story in here? Why is it significant? Why does it matter to the overall story of David and Scripture as a whole? Simply put, it is significant because redemptive historical issues are actually at stake. See, Jesus Christ would be born from the house of David. And the angel Gabriel, at the announcement of the birth of Christ, said this, The Lord God will give him, Christ, the throne of his ancestor, David. And so the question going on all in the background of all of this is what sort of throne will that throne of David be? Because in Christ, we see the character of the true covenantal king revealed in all of its fullness. And throughout this, this chapter, we see the enemy trying to weave a different story in the background, attempting to turn David away from God's covenantal ideal. See, the enemy wanted a king who would take justice into his own hands. And up until this point, the enemy's been unable to accomplish this in, in David's relationship with Saul. And so now he seeks to accomplish it in David's unexpected encounter with Nabal. See, had David killed Nabal and his people, the enemy would have won, and the trajectory of Christ coming to earth through his lineage would have been forever tainted. There's so much at stake behind the scenes in this story. And we see it so clearly when we jump back to that very first part of the very first verse in this chapter. Remember that, that little footnote about the death and funeral of Samuel? This is why it was included. See, Samuel was David's guy. He was David's advisor. David and Samuel spent a lot of time together. Samuel knew about David's struggles and specific about his being chased by Saul. And Samuel, up until that point, had been a voice of wisdom and discernment for David. But now he's dead. 
this spiritual mentor, is no longer a part of his life. And the picture here is that in this moment now, David is particularly vulnerable. And the enemy knows it. And the warning has to be the same for us today. It was a few weeks ago that I received a phone call from a, a longtime friend of mine uh, who, who was calling me looking for a bit of wisdom and just care um, and advice as one of his best friends had just revealed a really massive moral failure in his life. And for my friend in specific, this was actually the third and final guy who had been instrumental in leading him to faith in high school. And and of all those three guys, one had walked away from faith, one had walked away and was actually opposing the faith, and one now whose life personally has imploded. And so I just listened to my friend, I tried to give him some love and support and some care, and then I told him to be on guard, that in those following days he was going to be particularly vulnerable in these moments because the enemy sees that support system that had brought him towards Christ and his throne had crumbled all around him and so he was going to need in that moment in that space some external voices to point him towards truth and in our story of David we see luckily for David that God was powerfully sovereign over this whole situation See, as clever and and quick-witted as it seems Abigail was, it's clear, absolutely clear that she wasn't functioning by her own abilities, but that God was using her to speak the words that David needed to hear in that moment. It was God speaking to David through the person of Abigail, much like he had done years before through Samuel that set David straight. That's how she could speak of these practical personal realities of the defeat of Goliath, of the pursuit of Saul. It was God speaking through Abigail to effectively recenter David. She needed to remind him. God needed to remind him, David, you're going to become a king someday. And in your kingship, you need to act in ways that are appropriate to the true covenantal king who's coming after you. And so you, therefore, David, must not blemish yourself and your lineage with this blood guilt. Again, the enemy wanted David to lead as a king who would take things into his own hand, who would strap on a sword and carry out vengeance on those who stand in the way of God and his plans, but God had a very different plan, a very different plan which pointed to a very better and final covenantal king, a king who who came to earth, whom everyone expected would come to conquer and rule, but who instead submitted himself to the rulers and the kings of the world and ultimately to the plan and the power and the will of his father. A king who would teach that if someone slaps you on your right cheek, you're to turn and offer the left in return. If they take your shirt from you, you're to offer your jacket as well. Who instructed his people to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. And that when you do that, you act out your true identity as children of that final and true king. See, again, there's so much at stake in this moment for David. And God wove the story together and acted in ways necessary to help guide David towards patience and waiting for his provision rather than acting out of his own strength and power and anger. So what does it mean for us today then? Really practically, when you are mistreated, when evil is done to us, how do we respond? How will we respond? See, in this story, we we really clearly see three different responses. 
The first is that some people will return evil for good. This was the, the folly of Nabal, who wanted to insult and leave to die in the fields the men of David, even though they had taken care of Nabal and his enterprise. This was David's chief concern with Nabal as he's moving towards Nabal's household, breathing out over and over this fact again and again for all to hear, he has repaid me evil for good. Now those, those people generally, there's not a ton in a room like this. But, but the second response is one that I think a lot more of us can relate to. And it's this, that most people return evil for evil. This was David's intent, right? Well, since Nabal is going to mistreat me and my men, I'm going to do the same. And so he prepares to take his life along with everyone in his family and his enterprise. Now, it's an extreme example, but, but we get this response, don't we? I mean, we can relate to this response. Maybe it's, it's not you, maybe it's just me, but I know that my instinctive response when I'm wronged is to turn and try and wrong in return, to, to, to bite back, to push back. When, when we're jabbed by a loved one, we, we tend to jab back just a little bit stronger, right? When we're mistreated, by an employer, we seek justice and, and repercussion. We long for this eye-for-an-eye mentality. And we have Jesus, who stood directly in between this, and he says, no. No, among you, it actually is supposed to be different. Because what's been modeled to us is that in which that Abigail does. And that is that exceptional people return good for evil. With David in hot pursuit of her family, she intervenes with gifts and provisions for sure, but more so with a posture that absolutely points us to the person of Jesus Christ. Look again at, at what she says when she gets to David. Verse 23, it says, She quickly got off her donkey. She bowed low before him, fell to her feet, and she said, I accept all blame in this matter, my Lord. I accept all all blame in this matter, my Lord. I mean, how can we not clearly see Jesus in and through this story? Just look to Jesus in, in, in that upper room as he removes the soiled sandals of the disciple Judas, who had already received the blood money to have Jesus arrested and handed over and tortured and crucified, kneeling down low before him with a towel around his waist, washing his feet. And who later, hanging on that tree, would call out to his father with all the onlookers listening, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in that powerful act, taking on himself every ounce of blame and shame and punishment and guilt from us upon himself. See, friends, this story powerfully points us to Jesus and calls us to respond to our world in the very same Jesus way, with grace and forgiveness and love and peace. But let me make something very clear. This story doesn't call us to be doormats. See, this story is all about relenting or giving up our right to get revenge. And, and that's got to be the clearest definition that I ever give when I tell people what forgiveness actually means. It's giving up my right to get revenge. It's turning the situation over to God, giving up my desire, my right to get justice to God, and trusting God 
to be righteous and just himself. That's what forgiveness is. It doesn't mean I become best friends with the person. It doesn't mean I forget what happened. It just simply means I give up my right to take revenge. And I turn the person and the situation over to God and trust him to be righteous and just. And friends, he, he is just. He really is. Whenever we try to get justice for ourselves, we, we end up hurting those around us for sure, but, but ourselves subsequently as well too. And we know this. We never truly find peace when we return evil for evil, do we? But when we give up our right for revenge and we turn justice over to God, it's there where we ultimately find freedom and peace. And the promise and reality is, is that God will still do all that he's promised and going to do. And David learned this powerfully. He gave up his right to slay Nabal, and within a couple of weeks, he learns that Nabal had a stroke, which ultimately took his life. And David's response to this being, praise the Lord who has avenged the insult I received from Nabal and kept me from doing it myself. And not only this, but God's justice towards Nabal would have been absolutely that which would have provided David with the trust and strength to not kill Saul when he stands over him with the spear at his head when he has the chance. Because God has proven himself as good and just. And so David could have confidence that God would do and would be all that he promised he would do and be. And I have to believe that his promise and his call is the same to us today. And the invitation is simply this, stand down. Stand down and turn it over to God. The Apostle Paul reiterated our posture towards injustice to the Romans, a church that was being brutally persecuted for, for their faith in Christ and their seemingly opposition towards uh, Rome. And so people were dying for their faith. They were being stoned and crucified, and it was brutal. And he, he wrote to them to encourage them. He said this, Dear friends, never take revenge. Never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. The anger that is right. It, it's, it's appropriate. Leave that to God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. He goes on, instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. So Crosspoint, as we wrap up really practically, the question I have for you is, where are you currently in this moment strapping on a sword to take matters of justice and vengeance into your own hands. Where is that? Is it, is it maybe in your marriage? As you stand face to face with someone who has hurt you, expecting now to enact your own sort of justice to the situation through causing pain in return. Stand down. Stand down. Turn it over to the Lord. Is it in your workplace? Have you just been stiffed by a boss and now you're going to do all that you can do to stand in his or her way and try to stir up dissension with others in an attempt to sidle them to your side? Stand down. Turn it over to the Lord. As I say this, I feel compelled to ask, for some of you, is it here? Is it, is it in this church where you feel in some way that, that you've been wronged 
maybe because of a, a program that was taken away or a style of music that is sung or maybe no longer sung or a decision that, that, that your leadership team made that you disagree with and now you're, you, you're just wanting to stir up some dissension and division and an attempt to enact some justice by your own means and by your own, is, is it here? And if it is, stand down. Stand down, turn it over to the Lord. Where is it for you that you need to release and let go and forgive and repay what you might have experienced as, as evil with kindness and goodness? This is how Paul says we actually overcome and conquer evil, is through goodness. And so church, I, I implore you, stand down. Don't repay evil with more evil. Assume the position of Jesus, who was, who was absolutely powerful, fully courageous, in his total humility, showing love to hate, forgiveness to wrongdoing, and peace to dissension, and turn the situation, whatever your situation is, and I believe that God has or will reveal what it is that you have your sword currently strapped on for, but turn it over to God and trust him to do what he's supposed to do, and not you. See, that desire for justice, that's God's design in you for sure. But the pursuit of that justice by your own means and strength, that's actually the enemy's lie. God never tells you to get revenge. He says, forgive. He says, offer the other cheek. He says, let go and trust me. And in the same way that the enemy tried to rewrite David's story, God looks to you in your current situation and he asks, what story do you want your life to tell? Is it one of love or vengeance? Now, my prayer for you is that it would be the former. Let's pray. God, thank you for this, this powerful and vivid story that's been preserved for us. And God, how your spirit illuminates it to us and, and allows us to so clearly see your son, your love, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. And God, I pray for this church as they are embarking on some big, new, exciting things that are going to push and stretch this community. It's going to open up immense opportunities. It's going to cause some confusion at times. It's going to cause maybe um, some minor division, and, and unity might start to, to crumble at moments and spaces. And I just, I pray truly for them in this moment that you would keep them united that you would envelop them in your love and your grace and that they would clearly see the mission that you have called them to be on and all the other details as, as less important as what it is that you're leading and directing them towards. And so be with Rob as he gives direction and shepherds this group of people, cares for them. Um, be with the rest of his team as they navigate all of the things that, that they're going to be led into. And I pray for this group of people who've been faithfully part of this community. God, I, I don't know their stories, but you do. I don't know the, the places in their, in their lives right now where, where they're wanting to just make things right by their own means, where they're wanting to enact this sense of, of justice and vengeance by their own strength. I don't know what that is. You know what that is, and they know what that is. And Lord, I just pray that, that in this next moment that they would sense your, your whispers. And your invitation that just says so clearly, stand down and turn it over to me. And I promise I'll do what needs to be done. And so God, give us courage 
Give us the ability to believe that, to know that, to see that, and then ultimately to step into it and receive it. So God, um, we love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.